Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. Uh, how are you, Johnny? I'm very good. I'm very good. I see your big hero, Bob Dylan, <laughs> is 80 yeah. this year. He's, do you know what? You reminded me of that. I totally forgot. But my mother's only 88. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. That's a very good point. I just have to tell you uh, that John destroyed for a number of years my musical taste I, by I not didn't. only introducing me to Bob Dylan when we were kids, but kind of a barrage. It was like it was like a it was like a Gaza City sort of barrage of Bob Dylan ro- rockets coming into our house. I don't see it like that at all. I see a, a, that I enlightened you, Macker, into the world of fantastic lyrics, and you know, he was just amazing. But I will tell you this: tell me it when Dylan came. 84, was it? Yeah, it's the worst concert I was ever at. It was also my worst concert. It was, it was so bad, it was kind of good. <laughs> but I've seen him about three or four times since, and I will never go and see him again. Because he's, he's just brutal. He's just, just brutal. He doesn't give. He doesn't give. Yeah. you got to go to the well when you're doing these things. Yeah, you know, you yeah. really do. It was funny, though. Just I was, I was thinking about Dylan just before we started talking. The last time I was out, because I know we're going to be out quite soon, right? Yeah, out and was, bad, as Marlowe said. I was in New York in Broadway, Conor McPherson's play, The Girl from the North County. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, Dylan yeah. contacted Conor McPherson, the Irish playwright, and said, here's my back catalogue, have it. Yeah, right. that was amazing. It was extraordinary. So I, I went along and it was, it, was, it, was the, it was the preview night. So they were all like the New York Times sort of review yeah. critics. And this was a big, big deal for Conor, obviously, because New York Times can destroy Broadway, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the the critic from the New York Times gave it an amazing review. But the day afterwards, the entire Broadway closed down for the first time ever because of COVID. So I was in New York on the Saturday oh, before. Right. So you remember that the COVID hit here yeah. on that weekend? I was in New York that weekend. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing to think how many of these theatres will actually recover? How many of these businesses will recover? How many, you know, bars, theatres, restaurants, all these things? Because... Later on, I want to talk to you about Anthony Bourdain. Right. And restaurants, right? And a a concept of the city. But it just struck me that, you know, the amount of money plowed into these big productions all over the world. Mm. And all that money's gone. Yeah. And you wonder, well, Broadway didn't even close, think about it, in the Second World War or in the Spanish flu. 
Right. And it closed in this time. Wow, I didn't know that actually. Yeah, and the West End in London. Oh, and of course, you know, like we've been saying all the way along is um, all the kind of actors and musicians and... Yeah, creative. By the way, he's drinking water with ice and it's not a cocktail. <laughs> it's a real shame. That's a real shame. But actually, let me ask you one more question then. Did, was Dylan actually at the that performance? No, uh, Connor told me that Dylan has come to one... I think it was he, Connor had a play called The Seafarer, which also opened in New York. And I also saw it. Right. And uh, it's not that I go to New York all the time. Well, to it the sounds theater, like a, but the last, pop over a bit of shopping. No, over no, the last couple of times I happened to be there. He happened to be there. And, and there was something. And Dylan apparently went incognito all right. to The Seafarer and liked it so much and liked Connor McPherson's work that he said, look, I'm going to give this guy, wow. I'm going to trust this guy. It's an amazing story, yeah. isn't it? And it's a story that most Irish theatre people or artistic people don't know mm. that Bob Dylan gave Conor McPherson his back catalogue. Now, think of the amount of trust. Yeah. Like, think of the amount of time Steven Spielberg would have approached Dylan for his back catalogue. You know, or any of those big movie moguls, right? And yet he picked an Irish playwright. And he said, Do you know, the, 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 I haven't seen that and I'd love to see the girl from North County. Yeah, it's about, it's about Dulwich. Is that where he's from? Duluth. Uh, Duluth. Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah, and his... Dylan's parents ran a B&B boarding house mm. in the Great Depression. So it's about the characters who ended up in the boarding house. Right. Kind of down and outs, people down on their luck. Again, the sort of people that Bourdain is talking about, we're going to talk about in a, in a yeah. minute. You know, people running away from crimes or ex-wives or ex-husbands. But, or, but you can imagine uh, you know, Conor McPherson sitting there and Dylan says, take my catalogue. Where do you begin, you know? Well, that's the point. And he's very interested in that, Connor, because he said, look, I didn't want to go down the, you know, like a Rolling Stone, all the all the greats. Yeah, he said, yeah. I wanted to find some sort of unusual ones yeah. that were maybe address the issue of the Great Depression. And when Dylan was writing those, that in the back of his head was his parents' experience right. in the Great Depression as the B&B owners. I just think it's a, yeah, it's a lovely yeah. thing, but we could talk about this all night. In actual fact, we're going to play out with Somebody I've been listening to recently who I think is the new Dylan. Ooh. Okay, yes, yes. An who, English, who an, who <laughs> an English, gorgeous, gorgeous voice, amazing, amazing lyrics called singer called Arlo Parks. Oh, let's yes. do it later on. Yeah, let's yeah, do it later on. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And who, by the way, won uh, the Brit Awards this week, last week. So you know these things. I don't know these yeah, things. Yeah, well, I ended up watching that. It was just ridiculous just nonsense well, I, I hate award shows but i ended up watching that no the, the awards well in actual fact on on the tv we're going to talk about the tv show that i saw this week and how it reflects you can know, it's a conversation oh, right. between anthony bourdain and debbie harry of blondie and it was about new york in the 70s but actually it was about the housing market so let's talk about that but first john we're going to talk about is inflation back Mac, you know, over the course of two years now, we're podcasting. I know. I hate this. Can't stand the side of me. <laughs> but you know, we I just were... only see you about once every few months. Yeah, I know. I know. Now you're living here. <laughs> yeah, I'm living here. Get out of the place. Will you? It's like it's like a little kid's. Honey, John, I'm home. John's room. <laughs> it's like it's, it's like a wild teenager in there. But come here. Let's talk economics. All right, sunshine. Over the last while, you've always been saying that we need a little bit of inflation. Just, yeah. just to get the economy buzzing again. Yeah. But interest rates have been so low for yeah. the last while yeah, that yeah, yeah. inflation hasn't budged at all. But apparently the consumer prices and consumer inflation yeah. has risen 
to 4.2% in America. Yeah. What does that mean? And What's the impact of that? That has spooked the hell out of all sorts of financial markets because the working assumption for all these people, and I'm going to break it down in, in a second of what, it, what it's all about, was that we are in a deep deflationary period, Yeah, precipitated by COVID, and as a consequence of that, inflation will not reemerge for quite some time. Mm. And the Federal Reserve has been very, very chilled about that and said, you know what? We're not worried about inflation. And then, of course, lots and lots of people have said the Fed will wait until they almost see the whites in the eyes of inflation before <laughs> increasing the interest rate. Right. And people are saying now, well, hold on, those eyes look pretty white. You know, 4.2% is 100% above the inflation target. So the Fed's target is inflation between 0 and 2%. Okay? Yeah. Implicit, not explicit, but implicit, right? When you go to 4%, you're saying, hold on a second, you're not only missing your target, but in actual fact, it's way beyond it. And of course, there's been a hissy fit in financial markets and people are saying, this is the end of this period of very, very low interest rates. Is this being I, blamed on Biden, by the way? Ah, uh, no, no. I mean, only Egypt's say the president is responsible. You know, I mean, Fox right. News probably says it is, right? Oh, I'm sure they but, do. But the first more. thing is the most critical thing about statistics is you never take just one print and say, this is a trend, okay? Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is year-on-year inflation is basically it measures the consumer price index this year vis-a-vis last April. So there's a thing called base effects in statistics, right? Right. Now, base effects is how the base affects the actual figure. So if inflation fell dramatically last April and even was the same this April, the year-on-year figure would be much higher. Do you see what I mean? So basically, if, if last April there was something happened in the world that inflation fell, right. then you're comparing last April to this April, the base effect will actually drive inflation upwards, okay. not downwards. Yeah. And then you think, was there a base effect? And you think, what happened last April? Last April, we have the first month of the lockdown. People aren't going out, restaurants, bars, etc., shops, right? Yeah. So how do shops react? They drop their prices because everyone thought that we would be out of the pandemic in six weeks. Remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So everyone thought, you know, yeah. So everyone thought at the time, okay, this ain't going to happen. This isn't going to go on for a year. So we'll drop prices now. We'll be in a good position. Mm. We'll coax people back in. You know what? We'll all be out in in, in May. We'll have lower prices. They'll come in. Of course, that didn't happen. So again, the first thing about statistics is always look underneath the hood, as the Yanks would say. Look at the figure, right? So the base effect, very important. Then the second thing is the one-off increases in certain prices. So for example, I was telling you, Airline price has gone through the roof yeah, and used car price has gone through the roof as well in the United States. That all impacts. Interestingly, and it's, it's, it's bizarre, rents are continuing to fall in America. So rents have actually okay. not gone up. And this is, again, because of the fact that people are leaving the big cities. And so when people are leaving right. San Francisco and New York and all these places... They've been forced out. Yeah, they've been forced out. Well, no, the pandemic forced a lot of them out. Yeah. And they've said, okay... They've gone can, home. They've no, gone home. Yeah, so again, and again, because the American market is much, much more vibrant, much more sensitive to demand than our own market, right? Mm. What you see is all this. So my attitude is we should be quite chilled, wait until we see the next couple of months. But then there is one big imponderable. And it's the role of China. And I know you like China because it reminds you of Donald China. Trump. China. Right. So for the last 20 years, China has been what they call a disinflationary force in the world economy. Right. So what has happened is because so much of American production has shifted from high-cost America to low-cost China, 
And then those goods that were produced in low-cost China are re-exported to America, the same goods at lower prices. Yeah. So China is exporting deflation, if you get that, right? China, the influence of China is that the price of cars is going down, the price of iPhones, the yeah. price of all this technology, right, yeah. is going down. Because what had been made in the United States was what they call offshore to China. Yeah. What had, therefore, been expensive, because American wages are much more expensive than Chinese wages, or were, mm-hmm. right, becomes cheap. And then that goes back and Imagine global inflation to be like a relay race, yeah. right? That I'm passing the baton to you, you're passing the baton to me, right? So basically, the Chinese were passing on the baton to the Americans of all the stuff that was made in China, and all that stuff was substantially cheaper 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, but not so much anymore because Chinese wages are rising. Right. So the question then, the big question for American inflation. Can I, sorry, just before you go there, how did the tariffs, the trade war affect inflation? It would have affected it in in, in a negative way. It would have pushed up prices. Yeah, 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 absolutely right. Absolutely right. So that would have pushed up prices Mm. as well. So then the question is now, so if you look at all this kit that we use here for the podcast, right? Yeah. There was a time that would all have been made in Germany yeah. because it's better. I thought, is it still made in Germany? Now a lot of the stuff I'd say is made in China, right? Yeah. It's cheap. German company, actually. German company, well, yeah. It's like, yeah, a German company making it in China, mm. saving money, then re-exporting. So China has been this massive deflationary force in the world right? because China was catching up and because China was cheap. But now there's no reason to believe in the future. You know that baton idea <laughs> that yeah. China will be passing on a low-priced baton to the United States in the relay, I'm not sure that's going to be the case anymore. So basically, that massive deflationary bias that was there in the last right. 20 years maybe becomes a neutral bias or an inflationary bias. So that's what you've got to worry about more. So what I would say in the States is there's a couple of things going on. One is when the demand, the American economy yeah. is operating now at a growth rate about 10% higher. It's growing about 10% annualized right now. Wow, that's huge. Huge, right? So American supply, yeah. okay, the production capacity of the economy hasn't adjusted to that, right? Okay. The benign scenario is that the American production capacity will expand and therefore prices will fall. Right, that's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is, what about the impact of China? Does China become a deflationary or an inflationary force? They're all the things, they're the imponderables. Mm. But what I would say to you is that it seems highly likely to me that this 4.2 rate of inflation, you won't see that again, that that type of number. It'll so actually fall down, again, coming from the base effects more than anything yeah. else. So you're saying that 4.2 inflation might not be accurate at all. So there mightn't be any inflation as such well, if you're taking in the the base level first. Yeah, I think there, there, there will be some because the economy is recovering. But at its core, I think economists misdiagnose a lot of things about inflation. So economists, particularly monetary economists, would say inflation is related to the money supply. And the money supply expands. Other economists, you mean? Other economists. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Other lads. Other lads. You know, it's like a broad church. It's a broad church. You know, it's it's, it's, it's an interpretation of the scripture. Okay? So uh, you have the Lutherans, the Methodists, the, you know, the Plymouth Brethren, the Catholics, the whole thing. But it is. It is like. So at its core, inflation is about power. It's about the power to pass on price increases. Mm. So if you look at it like that, so have workers got the power to demand higher wages? Yes, then you're going to get inflation. It's about power. Does a company have the pricing power 
to pass on higher prices? If that's a yes, then you're in an inflationary situation. And what you are then, John, is having this battle, I think we've talked about before, between Schumpeter mm-hmm. and Phillips, right? The right. Phillips curve is about the relationship between unemployment and inflation, which is basically the idea that you can have low unemployment, but you've got to have high inflation. They go together. And right. the reason is the lower the unemployment, the tighter the labor market, the more power workers have, and the higher wages, right? Yes, yeah. Okay, so you can choose. Yeah. Schumpeter, which has basically been much more descriptive of the last 10 years is saying, on the contrary, technological change and globalization and the gales of creative destruction and better products, that's what's driving prices down. So you have this battle between Schumpeter and Phillips, Phillips being the Phillips curve, which was the old way of looking at it. And Schumpeter, although he's well dead, is very much the new way of looking at things. So so what what Schumpeter is saying is that you can still have low unemployment, but and low wa- wages and low and, wages and low wages. Now, right. now, my view is that that's a disastrous situation because yeah. high wages are actually what we're here to do. Mm. Higher wages are actually that's what economics is about. Yeah, right. And in fact, the entire Biden drive is to increase wages for the average person. Right. So the Schumpeterian view is great if you're an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Because you're getting a bigger bang for your book. You're yeah, getting sure. more product at less wages. But ultimately, and this is the key, Keynes would say, but you need to have people to buy your products. Yeah. And this is the this is the Henry Ford idea. Henry yeah. Ford paid his workers really well, not because he liked them. In actual fact, he hated workers. He hated trade unions. <laughs> yes. He used to employ the mob to break up trade union membership. Yeah. Horrendous he was a horrible character. person, actually. But he's a terrible racist as well. Unbelievable anti-Semite. That was his thing. Right. He's anti-Semitic and anti-black. And and anti-trade union, right? (laughs) Yeah. But he had one moment of inspiration, which was that I will pay my workers much better than anyone else, not because I like them, because I want them to buy my cars. Yeah. And his idea was that we cannot have a consumer society without a high-wage society. And in fact, Ford was very much ahead of his time in in, in many, many things, but apparently a very deeply, deeply unpleasant uh, person. So- the idea that wages can remain low for long is, I think, a fallacy, mm. right? That the whole objective of, of new economics and Bidenomics is to bring inflation up and bring wages up. But this print from this week, I think, over-eggs the pudding a little bit. And the really key thing to watch, I'm going to talk about house prices in a second, but the key thing to watch is this Chinese baton. If China becomes an inflationary source in the world, mm. then we're in a totally, then we are in a brave new world and all bets are off. So, so, and, and just for, as a headline figure of 4.2% or whatever, that's going to be spun oh, yeah. like, like you wouldn't believe by, by the Republican side. Well, Say yeah. Bidenomics doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's going to run the, the country. But you know, the great thing about stuff. Joe Biden, he's, he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the amazing thing about him. I was even watching him in this Arab-Israeli thing. Usually, if the Israelis and the Palestinians were involved in the horrendous stuff that's going on now, the Americans would have an envoy straight away. Yeah. Biden's, yeah. Biden's not doing anything. He's kind of said to Netanyahu, you fix it, you, you started it. Yeah. You fix it. So in a way, Biden is not, what I like about Biden is that he seems to me to be unencumbered by noise, right? And he doesn't react. Mm. Con- contrast that with Trump. Right? If Trump yeah. was on, right, he doesn't react. He says, I've got a pandemic in my hands. I've got a, an economy that needs healing on my hands. 
I want to figure out our relationship with China. I want to figure out our relationship with, with Russia. These are my big yeah. foreign policy and domestic policy. I've, I've an environmental policy that I want to get sorted. Yeah. And he's not affected by the noise. And that's sort that's of... because he's asleep. But that's... <laughs> That sort of single-mindedness, John, Jesus, interests me. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So we're talking about inflation there. And of course, a related topic is housing, which we talk yeah, about a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's interesting. I saw a thing on CNN there with a load of... Fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Go on. But, but it was really interesting. They were saying that house price, because it's not just housing we go on about in Ireland, but it's a very big issue right across the world. Yeah. And yeah, CNN yeah, yeah. were talking about this, where they were saying house prices across 37 different countries in the OECD yeah. have risen by 6.7% between 2019 and 2020. And they were saying it's the fastest year-on-year growth in the past 20 years. Yeah, no, it's happening all over the world. I mean, we become obsessed in Ireland because it's the conversation that Irish people are having. Yeah. It's the conversation that Irish politics is having. In fact, Michal Martin came out the other day and it was like a light bulb moment. He says, the single biggest issue for young people is housing. I felt like some man... You're only tweaking yeah. that now. Yeah, yeah. You know, but, but let's go broader. But he was down with the kids, you he know. He was down with the kids. No, but let's go broader. Let's go broader. Yeah. Which is that you're seeing this in all major urban areas all around the world. Uh, London, for example, you know, house prices in England are up 8.5% last year, right? Despite it being probably the worst recession in three centuries. Think right. about it. Right? Yeah. So normally what happens at house prices is they go with income. Yeah. So basically they go with GDP. So if GDP is falling... House prices will generally be falling. But what has happened in this pandemic is something quite, quite different, right? Which is an extraordinary, I mean, for example, again, we'll go back to London, right? Yeah. London house prices that are within our commute of London have gone up by 10% this year. Right. right? British house Just price, this year alone. Yeah, just this year alone. Wow. Right. British house prices. And in actual fact, if you talk to anybody involved in the property game in England, they'll say that houses 
in really nice rural areas have gone up even more because lots and lots of Londoners are saying, well, if I'm going to be able to work for three days a week or two days a week yeah. at home, I don't want to live in Putney <laughs> where I believe the Davis fortune is stashed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't, want to, you know, I don't want to live there and be tube bound. I'm going to yeah. live miles away. And you're seeing the same thing in New York, you're seeing this in San Francisco. You know, think about this. In China as well, what they call tier one cities, mm. Shenzhen, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, prices have risen by 12% on average year on year, right? So we're seeing this all over the world. And there's now what they call a race for space. Now, remember we talked about panic buying. Mm. This is what I think. And remember we just said recently, just, just a minute ago about inflation. Yeah. Inflation is about power. It's a power to be able to increase prices. So home sellers, house sellers now have all the power. They have the power to increase prices and prices are going up. And we've talked about the buyer strike before. Like if I was 30 years old, there's no way I'd get involved in this market. Yeah. Because it's just too dysfunctional. And I was watching something the other day on Netflix, John. All right. It's an interview with Debbie Harry. Brilliant. Debbie Harry. Looking extraordinary. Yeah, right? it's just, just a recent interview. Yeah, like last yeah. year with Anthony yeah. Bourdain. Right. Right. And it was amazing, right? Because what they were talking about, they were talking about culture. They were talking about, obviously, Bourdain and, and, and Debbie Harry, broadly around the same generation, hung out in New York, in the kitchens, hung out in the yeah. Lower East Side, in the CBGB places, right? Yeah, yeah. It's Andy Warhol, and it's, you know, it's Patti Smith, and it's Blondie. New York was really And it's cool. the New York Dolls, yeah. and it's television, yeah. and all that great stuff, right? But yeah. New York was really cool. Yeah. And they were talking about New York being really cool and creative and interesting. But what I got from this, they were actually talking about housing because they were making the link between the fact that New York was affordable for yeah. all these misfits and oddities and creatives and whatever, and the fact that once you put together all these people in a creative stew, so to speak, yeah. in the Lower East Side, amazing things happen because yeah. people meet each other, right? Yeah. And they were making the point that, and it's true, if you're in Manhattan now, the only art is upscale art galleries. Like right. if you go to Manhattan, you know, there's, there's no sense now, the Lower East Side. I mean, the Lower East Side is where Kavanaugh has his bar now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or had his bar. He closed it down. What, what was it the, called? The, the Red Line. No, the Dorian Gray. Oh, the Dorian Gray. Well, the Red yeah, Line yeah. was on Bleecker Street. Yeah, yeah. Where all of Monkstown works illegally <laughs> every year. <laughs> finest kitchen porters, bar. the finest kitchen porters <laughs> in the whole of America yeah. came from Monkstown in the Red Line. No, but the Lower East Side. So they were making the point. They were they were riffing about music and art and culture and, and, and literature and whatever and the punk movement. Yeah. But what they were actually saying, like if you think of punk was all about DIY, do it yourself, right? You yeah. don't need anything. You can do it yourself. But what they were making the point was once, and it's, a, it's well, they didn't make the point, but I was thinking this, right? Right. But okay. once... They should have made the point. They should have made the point, right? <laughs> I was going to ring up Blondie and say, Debbie, got a point here for you. But and of course, Burdain is now dead, which is the, one of the great tragedies. Because I actually met Burdain, did I tell you? No, go on, I tell interviewed us. him. I interviewed him for Agenda years ago. Right. right? And we met, the extraordinary thing is, because Agenda was on a TV3 on a Sunday morning, it was yeah. very niche, yeah. which means no audience. <laughs> but it was great it was, because it wasn't on RTE. We could decide what current affairs was. Because if you're doing a similar program on RTE, you'd have like, you know, producers and editors, yeah. and they'd be yeah. forcing you to talk to, I don't know finance ministers or something like that. Yeah. That's their perception. Yeah. I was calling it Eroctus Current Affairs. You know, it's yeah. Leinster House Television, right? But we couldn't decide what Current Affairs was. And we decided, let's go to New York and interview lots of people. But Bourdain, not about food, but about the people in 
the restaurant? Who right. are they? Where do they live? And I'm going to give you a quote from Burdain about the- Go on. The restaurant, because again, it comes back to my time as a fantastic dishwasher. One of the <laughs> finest dishwashers ever, right? <laughs> but Bourdain was talking about the people in Kitchen Confidential. Have you ever read his book? No, no, I haven't. It's a gem, right? The people who work in restaurants. So he says, so who the hell exactly are these guys, the boys and girls in the trenches, right? In the kitchens, right? Yeah. You might get the impression from the specifics of my less than stellar career that all line cooks are whacked out moral degenerates, dope fiends, refugees, thuggish assortments of drunks, snake thieves, sluts, and psychopaths. You wouldn't be too far off base. The business, as the respected three-star chef Scott Bryan explains, attracts fringe elements, right? People for whom something in their lives has gone terribly wrong. Or maybe, just like me, they like it here. Right, right? yeah, yeah. And But the question is, where do those people live? This is the interesting thing. Yeah. If house prices go up too much, if the city becomes unaffordable, people like that cannot live. So the city then loses its soul. Because a city should be a melting pot of all sorts of people. Because what is so attractive about cities is the fact that a city sucks in people from all over yeah. for a variety of different reasons. You yeah. know, people go for ambition, they go for wages, they go but for to make fame. it functional, to make it the city function, yeah. you know, on a, on a very basic level. Exactly. You know, and if you think about, if you think about, you know, if you look historically why people left small places to go to cities. Like I was always intrigued when we were in New York or in London. You'd meet these people, or you'd hear them, older men in particular, and women from the west of Ireland, mm. with really, really like very, very heavy Mayo or Galway accents, Connemara accents. And yet, the beautiful thing about the city is they can find their place, right? So these people, and I remember TK's uncles, I met them from Mayo. Yeah. Many of them hadn't been to Dublin. They went straight from Mayo to London on the mail boat here from Dunleary. And they were, yeah. like, but they found their place. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And, and, and these were adventurous people and transformational people and people who said, you know what, I'm going to go and make something mm. of my life. So cities. But they have, remained very Mayo, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But even, but so cities have to be this extraordinary blend of social strata, mm. right? And what Bourdain is making the point is, you know, if the kitchen porter cannot live within, you know, a couple of blocks are commuting distance, but I don't mean like commuting yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. Of, of the restaurant. Then it all begins to atrophy. And what you get is gentrification. Gentrification isn't a bad thing in, in and of itself, but what it does, it destroys the soul of the city. Yeah. And the soul of the city is the beating commercial idea that all these restaurants, whether it's in Dublin or New York, they all need to function. So the, 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 the point I took from that conversation mm. was that Cities need to provide a refuge, a home, a place. I mean, if you look at why people go to cities, you know, all sorts of things. In yeah. fact, I was reading a great book called Metropolis recently, and he's making the point that most people go to cities for sex. Right. It's okay. really interesting, you know, for liberation, yeah, you know, yeah, for yeah. you know, for for stuff you can't get at home. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, well, that makes sense. You, <laughs> you know? it's part of the exploration. Yeah, it's part of the adventure. Exactly, exactly. And therefore, it has to. It has to. And I was, I was also reading about the Greek agora, John. Yeah. The Greek agora. So the Greeks had an amazing idea that they put the market at the center of the city. Right, and that was the thriving hub of the city. So people came, peddlers and hawkers and hustlers, and people from all over the place. Right, came to the centre. So unlike other civilizations, which used to put the garrison, or they put the king's palace, mm. or they put the great, you know, cathedral to such and such. Right, the Greeks 
always put the market. And the reason they did is they understood that the city has to be alive. So if even if you, you know, Aristotle, the Greeks were obsessed about being a citizen. Yeah. How do you be a good citizen? This is their thing. How do you be a good citizen? You be a good citizen by learning to live together. And you don't learn to live with people of your own social class. You learn to live together with people of different social classes. Yeah, sure. And that's what always intrigued me about, you know, the cosmopolitan nature of cities or even the expression, you know, to be urbane. You know that idea, you know, because people think, yeah. oh, urbane means you're, I don't know. Sophisticated in some sort of way. Yeah, or suave or well-educated yeah, yeah. or well-read. I actually don't think that it's, a, I think being urbane is something much more interesting. It's actually being an urban person, being somebody who can live in the city, who's open to the possibility of the city, who's kind of messy. Cities yeah. have to be messy. Yeah. Because yeah. messiness is at the core. And it's funny when you hear Bourdain talking about cities, what's the thing? It's the messiness, you know? It's not about clean lines. In fact, sometimes when I hear architects saying, oh, we should have all buildings like this, <laughs> right? I always think, no, clean lines is anti-urban. Urb urbanity and urban, the urban world is a messy, random, unpredictable... Well, it's the melting pot. Yeah, the old, the old, you know, the old, the old phrase. So when I was thinking that we should introduce the Bourdain approach to cities, which is that a city will work if in every restaurant, from the kitchen porter to the commie chef, the side chef, the sous chef, the maitre d', to the swankiest table yeah, out by the window when people can look at you, right? <laughs> look at me, I'm in the swanky table, right? All those people should be able to live within 15 minutes of the restaurant. That should be the aim of the 15-minute city. Because then you will get this extraordinary energy that cities need to have to grow. Because if they don't have their own internal energy, they'll yeah. just become amusement parks for rich people. Yeah. You know, who go in and say, well, I'll go to a swanky restaurant and then I'll drive home. Yeah. And then suddenly you lose all that creative, the creative juices of a city. And that's the challenge for places like Dublin. How do you get poor people to live in the city? You build subsidized housing and you get rich people to pay for it and that's the essence i was waiting for the bus one day watched a fight between a Aussie couple escalate Strawberry cheeks flushed with defeated rage Then he spilled his coffee as he frantically explained Maybe if you took a breath You would hear me when I talk to you Through her necklace in his face Eyes so bright with disappointment I saw something inside her Started screaming
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.